Hello, everyone, and welcome to ADV Moto Live number 10. We've got a great show tonight. The American motorcycle culture has evolved a lot in the past 10 years. One of the most notable changes, aside from the tremendous growth of the adventure market, is the shift towards smaller, more practical bikes. Merits of lighter, less powerful bikes with skinnier price tags speak for themselves, but one brand in particular has really come on strong in the past five years and in many ways redefined both value and style in American motorcycles. Tonight, we talk about the challenges of Royal Enfield, an exciting update on the Himalayan, and meet a young man breaking a world record on one. Stay tuned. All right, our first guest tonight joins us from Milwaukee where she is the driving force behind the rise of Royal Enfield, both in North America and abroad. Having been tasked with bringing a fresh face to the company when they launched in the United States in 2015, many of you may have met her at one of the many test ride events that they've been putting on around the country. Everyone, please welcome Brie Poland. How's it going, Brie? How you doing? Doing good, Carl. Thanks for having me on. I always love chatting with you. Oh, yeah, man. It's awesome to talk with you all the time. Uh, so you are up in Milwaukee. How are things going on up there? Oh, well, a little bit of a pandemic, a little bit of everything else. We've been working from home since March 12th, adjusting to the always being at home environment when normally, as you know, I'm always on the road doing events yeah, yeah. across the world. And yeah, I'm ready to get back on the road again. Well, right on. So for those of us that may not know you or what you do, can you give us a general background and what you do over there at Royal Enfield? Sure. So I am currently the head of marketing and communications for Royal Enfield America. So I look over everything from Canada all the way down into Argentina. I develop the marketing strategies, how we work with consumers and potential customers, do all the press releases, do all the demo programs, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I did develop the retail environment program, but I'm passing that off to another coworker because it's just getting a little too hard for me to handle right now. <laughs> wow, yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of work, especially when you're covering that much geographic area. That's bonkers. Do you have any stress management tips on how you deal with uh, that? Medication. Lots of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no sleep. No sleep, Carl. Yeah, boy, you know, when you carry that much responsibility, sleeping is a luxury, it, isn't oh, it? Oh, I miss those days. I do. Yeah. Someday. Well, yeah, just got to try and get someone whenever yeah, you can, right? Okay. Yeah, awesome. So let's go back a little bit before you started Royal Enfield. I mean, how did you get involved in motorcycling? And, you know, what was your first bike? Oh, I don't, you know, to be honest, and I, I, I saw that you wanted to ask me that question. I don't even remember really what my first bike was. I had a lot of borrowed bikes and a lot of gifted and loaned bikes throughout my life. So mm. if you were to ask me cool. like, what first bike I owned officially, it was a BBR 50, one that I actually bought myself. I've been in the motorcycle right industry since I was around 18 or 19 years old. Anyone that knows me knows that I got into road racing through professional modeling and you know, people always question, so you're an umbrella girl? Absolutely. And I have no shame in that. I was able to travel the U.S. and be around motorcycle racing and really get to know the ins and outs of motorcycles. By the time I left the road racing paddock, I had owned my own team. We had won many successful championships. Wow. And then I had moved part-time to Spain with Melissa Paris to help her in her Spanish pursuit of uh, winning a championship or trying to win a championship in the Spanish CEV championship. And then wow. Royal Enfield called me and said they were opening up offices in North America and wanted to know if I wanted to be part of it. And I didn't hesitate. Wow. That's pretty intense. So 
coming off of the Paxton stuff as a, you know, as a model, I mean, when did you actually decide that, shit? well, you know what, standing around and stuff is cool, but it's time for me to get in the saddle on this, you know? I think I had been with the same team for a long time, and I was in college, and I started asking the team owner to give me more responsibilities. So I said, hey, you know, I really uh, want to take over public relations and communications and the event planning and branching out, and he trusts me with all that, and it kind of just went from there. And then I would say... About seven years after being with that team, I was approached to help manage the Geico Buell factory team with Danny Eslick and Michael Barnes. And you can't say no to that. So Richie Morris owned the team. I managed the team. Danny won the championship that year. And then after that, a private investor said, hey, I think you need to be a team, you know, your own team owner. I'll back you. I would love to see a woman wow. own her own program. So that's kind of how it started. And with that, I think we won three championships when I had my own team. And then sponsorships got tight. We lost our prime coverage on um, what at the time was Speed TV. So my title sponsor, which was Riders Discount, offered to buy out all of the equipment that we had and take over the team. And then I stayed on to manage it for about a year. And then Melissa decided she wanted to shift from racing in the United States full-time to racing in Spain full-time. And it was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Wow. So how did you enjoy Spain? You know, we were over there for a brief time, you know, doing some junkets and stuff. But man, what a different culture in terms of motorcycling. It's not even culture. It's the part of, I guess it's a culture, but it's part of your life. There's so many motorcycles, yeah. people grow up, you know, on scooters and motorcycles, and it's not a hobby. It's their life. It's integrated into every aspect of everything that they do. You walk into a gas station and they are selling motorcycle replicas. They've got Mark Marquez and, you know, Jorge Lorenzo plastered everywhere. You can't help but be a motorcyclist living in Spain. There's just no choice. So it's completely yeah. different to the culture that we have here in the U.S. where motorcycling is, you know, for the most part, a hobby. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, I can see that. But but you enjoyed your time over I there? adore Spain. I think at this point, I've probably been to Spain 20 times through my travels with Melissa or for work now. And I guess you could say it's like my second home. <laughs> I still oh, travel wow, with cool. her. So she now races World Endurance. So when I can take vacation time, I travel with Melissa to Spain and France when she's racing on the World FIM World Endurance team. So I still go over there. Wow, that's awesome. And which part of Spain were you in? Every place that has a racetrack. Albacente, Alicante, Barcelona, everywhere. El Norio. Yep. Every single, I've yeah, been to yeah. every racetrack in Spain. Yeah. Wow. So you've been really just, I mean, speaking of travel, you've been crazy busy traveling around the United States and the world, really promoting not just the Himalayan, but a lot of the other Royal Enfield models as well, most notably the Twins most yeah. recently. And I would probably say that out of all the factory rep, you're the most like on the front line in terms of just like, you know, you want to get out there and you want to meet people in person. And, you know, and it seems like you don't really want to put a wall up between you and the Royal Enfield rider. So, you know, what is your philosophy about marketing a brand like Royal Enfield? And, you know, do you see it working? I see it working. Obviously, our sales keep growing every year and it's because of the product. And I do think it's the personal approach. We are a small enough brand where we can interact with consumers. We can have really great relationships with our dealers. We can do things that are kind of off the grid or the normal way of thinking. You know, I mean, when you came to our Himalayan launch, we had what I thought was a lot different motorcycle launch than a lot of manufacturers do. And I want to distinguish Royal Enfield from, I want to separate Royal Enfield from everybody else and show them that all the positive aspects about Royal Enfield and how fun and involved that Royal Enfield can be. And it's not just 
one aspect of your life. You can include it into everything that you do. So that's why when I did the launch, you know, we had so many other activities going on to show you that motorcycles can be part of everything that you do from getting to work, to going to the shooting range, to jet boats or whatever it is. Like you can take your Himalayan or your Royal Enfield on that. I mean, granted, you could take your any motorcycle there, but I'm not there to promote other motorcycles. I'm there to promote Royal Enfield. And the reason I go to events, Carl, is I love hearing consumer feedback, whether it's a potential customer or someone that, you know, maybe had some negative insight on the brand. I can sit there and I can talk them through, you know, the upgrades and manufacturing responsibilities, our UK tech center, our amazing product strategy, industrial design team, and all the things that we're doing to truly make Royal Enfield a global brand. It's a lot easier for me to do that and be authentic than just the normal traditional ways of doing the website or just doing advertisements. It's really getting in there and talking to customers. And I feel I'm very active on all the Royal Enfield forums. I love hearing their insight. I love conversing with them. Sometimes I don't like what they have to say, but I love hearing that they have opinions and where we can work better as a brand to help our current customer base out. That's cool. Is, is there some um, example, maybe like in particular, of something that you learned from the community that you wouldn't have otherwise? That they really want a um, 650 Himalayan. <laughs> yeah, we already have questions about that. <laughs> sure. There was a couple of people saying, infamously unknown, <laughs> says, what is the word for getting the great 650cc in the Himalayan? The 411 uh, cannot survive on the modern highways of the United States. And I know that this is a question that's been around for a long time. I get um, it every day. I think, yeah. So, I mean, is there an official scoop on that? Like, it's just straight up not happening or maybe? Who knows? Uh, you know better, Carl. And you know that I can't talk about any talk potential about or potential future product. Right. But we are seeing everyone. We are seeing people ask for a 650. We do see it. You know, our CEO sees it. Our managing director sees it. Our industrial design team sees it. We all see it. That's all I can say yeah. about that now. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. And I think if it pops up on the radar somewhere, I think everyone else will be if happy. If it to pops see it up, well. it's thanks to you guys for keep continuously in our ear about it every day. But I have no update on that. Okay. That's awesome. So there are some updates, though, coming to the Himalayan. And, you know, it's had a couple of different versions. I think maybe the first one, we didn't really get here right away, right? That one was released just in India. So it was, it's not even set to come to the U.S. And I think you and I and Rod talked about that when we met you in Texas is they had no plans to bring it to the U.S. Their plan was to make a motorcycle meant to ride in the Himalayas. And, you know, when all of us saw it, we said, no, you absolutely need to bring it. That is definitely a global uh, product. And it took a while for us to convince them to do it. So it took us about two years after the launch in India to finally be able to bring it to North America. And then by that time, how many updates and revisions had been done? And this is another question. What are the differences in a bike between a model that is suitable for sale in India or say overseas in general and one that would be suitable for sale in the United States? I mean... This is a kind of a question where people say, well, you know, why do they do that here, but not here kind of thing like that? You know? So different laws and regulations, we have to have a different kind of exhaust. Our windscreen has to be different. Our headlight has to be different. So we can't launch the same product that India does. And I don't think a lot of people realize that is what is legal and allowed in India is not necessarily allowed in Europe and North America. So we do have to make provisions to be able to sell a product here. And when they originally launched the Himalayan in India, it was carbureted. And you can't sell on-road motorcycles, carbureted on-road motorcycles anymore. You have to have UCE, current products. So there's a lot of things that we had to work with the factory in the back end to ensure that they were able to do in order to deliver a bike that was suitable for the U.S. 
There have been some upgrades that we have introduced. So when we came to the market, we had no ABS. And then last year we released the model with ABS. It was not switchable. And I'm not going to get in trouble for saying this because India and Europe have already launched it, but there is a refreshed Himalayan. We are bringing that to the U.S., Unfortunately, with closures of the factories in India due to COVID and everything like that, the release keeps getting delayed because if factories close, we can't produce motorcycles. And it's out of our control at that point. But we are going to bring in the refreshed Himalayan that everyone is seeing. So the red, the blue, the gray, that's all going to be available. It will be an adjusted kickstand, some other features that are upgraded, and it will have switchable ABS. So you can choose to switch it on or off. So those are some of the upgrades that are coming. I just can't tell you definitively when because that really just determines when India is going to be able to open again and produce the motorcycles for our market. Okay. Yeah. So in India, I think they're calling it the BS6 for the Indian emission standards, which is what that is. But ours will still be a four version for the U.S. emission standards, but it will have all of the bells and whistles on there and stuff, right? So if we have uh, this new bike, is there going to be a price change? Uh, There will be an incremental price change. Not much. I I have not divulged pricing or we have not publicly yet. So just stay tuned on that. Usually we don't try it. We don't do that. And so we know that the motorcycles are on the water and ready to ship and wait for the official press release. Very cool. Very cool. I was just trying to dig around and do some research, you know, on the bike. And I guess there were some guys that were in India and, and they had, you know, done some nice video and they had talked about, it. I guess they already had a chance to ride Oh yeah, it. now for a and, couple uh, months in other countries for sure. Yeah, well, he said something and because I don't know if this is true, but he, he mentioned something about the transmission feeling crisp. Have there been any other changes to the model? There was that and then there was a kickstand, I think, in the press release. The kickstand has been redesigned or kickstand something. Kickstand is amazing. And you have a Himalayan, so... I know yes. what your thoughts and everyone else's thoughts are on the Himalayan, the, the kickstand. The Himalayan is definitely shorter. The kickstand is definitely shorter on that. And right on. I don't, and I'll have to, and I feel bad for not knowing this, but I have rode the new refresh version because I might have a couple here in the U.S. right now. And it is very smooth shifting. Very. Awesome. So we can unofficially, there, there you go. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> so we can unofficially confirm that there have been some modifications made to the transmission. That's awesome. It's a smoother ride. You don't, I think as a company grows or as you have a product and you have to do upgrades, you look at the whole product and not just releasing just for us, it's not just changing the color. It's looking at the things that maybe there could have been modifications or something, right? So it was taking the whole motorcycle itself and saying, what can we improve as a whole as a refresh product? Well, I will oh, tell you the current cool. Himalayan, we're completely sold out in the U.S. We have not one Himalayan mm-hmm. left in the warehouse. To this day, for two years, it's been our top seller. It's still selling more than the ones are. Wow. I think that this motorcycle has helped push people into the ADV segment. I really do. And, you know, having partnerships with people like you and, you know, your love and affection for the brand and your promotion of it, I think that really helps. It gives us credibility because not everyone always wants to believe what the brand has to say. So when you build relationships like we have with you, I think it really helps. Yeah. Yeah, Well, we're hardcore believers in, (laughs) yeah, in a range of bikes and that you need more bikes because you need more bikes. If you want more riders in terms of being able to appeal to different people, you know, that's so important. And I feel like over the past 20 years, maybe say like traditional genres of American motorcycling pigeonholed people, you know, either into your either sport bike, your either motocross or your, you know, your V-twin 
or your sort of whatever. And that's why I said, like, really having Royal Enfield bring out some of these things, I think added a really nice splash of diversity to what was available on in the landscape of the market. And I feel as a way that, like, the brand helped encourage other OEMs to think just outside of the larger CC segment and encourage them to say, or to think like, hey, there's a whole group of people that we could touch if we had a motorcycle that was less expensive, that was accessible and easier to work on. And I feel like Royal Enfield helped that movement for sure. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that, you know. So when, when you talk about people in the Himalayan community, you know, I've been following that too, and I'm part of it too myself. I've related some experiences to you as well about, you know, about a, I actually pulled up into a barbecue joint and a, a older woman came out and she actually started crying because her father rode a Himalayan like in the 1920s or something. And she couldn't believe that she could even see you know, like the badge emblem, like in front of her, because that was one of the fondest memories she had of her father. And that's not necessarily a direct writer, but it does kind of go to show what heritage means and the kind of value that it has, you know, and also how close motorcycling is to people. Yeah, I always tell Royal Enfield owners when I meet them or when people are interested in buying the brand is be prepared to be pulled over or yelled at at a stoplight or sit in a parking lot and talk to someone for 20 minutes because yeah. Royal Enfield does that. It ignites conversations. It brings back memories. You know, when I was riding the Classic 500 before we introduced the Himalayan and the Twins is I would get pulled over all the time. I'm like, officer, I wasn't speeding. Like, what are you doing? Oh, I want to know how old your bike is. You know, it's in immaculate condition. And how long did it take you to restore that? And I'm like, okay, have a seat on the curb. Let me talk to you about Royal Enfield. And this is my 2018 classic, and I didn't have to restore it. So I actually enjoy it, but I also warn customers and potential customers, like, you are going to have to have a lot of conversations, and you're going to have a lot of questions. And, you know, yeah. and some of them have come back to me and shared, like, some stories with me over time, and it's really good to hear that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think has the attraction to it is, I remember, you know, shortly after I got it and I was just kind of riding around and I'm kind of thinking to myself, I was like, one of my appeals of the Himalayan is that it's almost like a schizophrenic <laughs> bike. Like in a sense that like you sit on it and you're like, what am I riding? You know what I mean? It's like, it's a dual sport. It's kind of a cruiser, but ultimately in the end, and this is what I love about it. And I think this is why they sold out and they're successful. The Himalayan is the Himalayan. There's nothing else like it on the market. I think probably the closest thing that it started to compete with was the KLR 650, just in terms of, you know, like when people were looking at, well, you know, like, should I buy a new or used KLR or a Himalayan? People just like, well, you know, the Himalayan's lines are not aggressive and the seat is much lower. And then you're also getting into a new bike. And then there's the whole sort of look to it too. But on a personal level, and I think this is what drives the curiosity for people straight up, you know, coming out of gas stations, coming out of whatever, like restaurants, whatever it is, they will come out and look at the Himalayan before they'll go look at a sport mm -hmm. bike. And I think that is a true sign of, you know, an actually unique design. And I think that the guys should be proud of that. The guys that put it together, right? Yeah. And you met Pradeep Matthew at the Himalayan launch and he was an integral part of the design and the product development of the motorcycle. And he loves, you know, I'm, he's probably watching this right now <laughs> um, over in India, but I think they did a really good job. Right on. I think a lot of other people too. So when are we going to be able to see the new version? I mean, is that sort of, or is there a rough estimate by the end of the year or? Definitely before the end of the year. Well, and again, this, I guess I can't say definitely because it really depends on the status of the pandemic. The Indian, the factories in India reopened only to be shut down again because they saw a surge in cases. You know, now they're the country with the fourth highest amount of cases in the world. 
and they're shutting everything down again. So that means the factory is not going to be able to produce those motorcycles. So when the factory produces something, they have lines for when international motorcycles are produced, right? So outside of India, because India obviously sells motorcycles, and then they have to be put on a container, and then they're sent over in a ship. And that takes, you know, two to three months, depending. And then they have to, you know, be PDI because we have the PDI center in Texas and then sent out to dealers. So it's not tomorrow, unfortunately. It's not in July, unfortunately. We were hoping to be able to bring them the refleshed Himalayas to the market in July, but that's just not going to happen now. Um, no one could have guessed that we were going to have this worldwide pandemic and it, it's just altered plans. I think right now it's really day by day. We keep the dealers updated. We keep the sales teams updated. We work, you know, our after sales team and our operations team work, you know, with the factory and get updates as often as they can. But I'm hoping that the factory opens by the end of July and where we can get them in the September, October timeframe, but I don't want to make any promises. I don't like broken promises, but I'm hoping that, you know, September, October timeframe. Somewhere in there. So you're talking about early mid-fall or something yeah, like that. I still Somewhere. think it's still a riding season. So, you, could, you know, depending if you're a fair weather rider, wow, that took a lot to say, you know, you could potentially get some riding in. We have customers up here in Milwaukee that ride throughout the winter, like uh, Chris Steele, one of our brand ambassadors, he rides in snow and ice and sleet on his Himalayan. He's kind of crazy though. I hope we can salvage some of the riding season and get, you know, the refresh and laying out there for people. I know people are already putting down deposits and really excited, especially because dealers are running out of stock of the current ones. You know, they really depend on that too. And for most dealers, the Himalayan is the top seller. Yeah, right on. Now we've got a question here from a Himalayan, I guess, owner. Uh Yeah, Adventures with Farmer Troy, and it's a parts supply question. My question is, is the Texas Parts Warehouse shipping product? He ordered a touring seat in March. Uh, through his dealer and they don't know when it will arrive so the warehouse is open they are shipping out orders so basically they just go through the queue and get them out as quickly as possible but they are shipping out orders and we have a very small team as you know in the u.s and they're doing the best they can right now dealers that have put in orders they will be tended to especially if the item's in stock. And I'll check and get back to you on the touring seat. If you want to give him my information, I can check to see if the um, touring stock is in seat in the warehouse or it's on back order. But feel free to share him my email with him. Farmer Troy, maybe see if you can send us a message separately. And yeah, and I'll definitely check into that. And also let me know what awesome. dealer it is. Yeah, right on, right on. Awesome. And then we've got a couple of Giamoto Adventures is, is here in the audience tonight. It says, the Himalayan blows me away. It goes everywhere. It's a tractor. And that is absolutely true. And then Jesse Campbell, uh, he's that, amazing. Yeah, good old Jesse. He actually made a skid plate, which I believe is in this series of images for the Project Himalayan. Yeah, so what are your thoughts about the aftermarket support for the Himalayan? Man, that just kind of likes, I mean, that was fantastic. I mean, it just kind of really sprung up. Say within like a year, everybody just started really making stuff for it. They are, but you know, as an employee of Royal Enfield and a strong believer to Mm. support the brand, there are a lot of things that we do develop. So I would look at our product catalog first. If it's something that, you know, we don't manufacture or make, then, you know, definitely look around. But, you know, there are some great things. That's a nice Corbin seat, by the way, Carl. Those are expensive seats, too. It's comfortable. (laughs) We definitely have, you know, a decent amount of GMA accessible for all our range of current products. So, you know, as a brand supporter, you know, send an inquiry into a dealer. Tell them you want the hard bags. Tell your dealer what you want and have them order it. 
you know, when there isn't a crazy pandemic happening and we're not trying to fulfill all, you know, a million orders at once, we can usually get the dealer a customer order within a couple of days. And that's in a normal okay. situation. Obviously, we're not in a normal situation right now, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. And uh, Farmer Troy says, thanks for answering my question. You're Bree. very so. welcome. So he posts some appreciation. Yeah. That's great. That's <laughs> Thank <awesome>. you. <laughs> All right. So we've got the Himalayan coming. I mean, that's awesome. and It's new. But also we very briefly want to touch on the twins, right? So during your test ride extravaganza that you guys did all around the United States, which was awesome. They had one over here, not too far from us, just, just across the border in West Virginia. The yeah, Summer Point Raceway. Summer Point Raceway. What a great, beautiful weather. A lot of different people showed up. I mean, one thing I loved was seeing the bikes of the people that showed up. I mean, it was everything from, you know, from street nakeds to cruisers to V-twins to gold wings to, I mean, all kinds of people showed up, you know, to ride it. And you guys put on a top-notch show. But, man, when I sat on the INT or the Interceptor, I was like, man, this thing could be scrambled out. I mean, it has real scrambler potential. Oh, know. yeah. Yes, Carl. I know. I'm working on your agreement for that one next. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get I enough. Know, I know. Yeah, but- There's so many possibilities of customization, whether you just add a few, you know, aftermarket, like Royal Enfield accessories on it, or if you just go big. I think the chassis and the engine for the Royal Enfield twins is a really good base starting point. And, you know, just doing, I don't know if you saw, but I just showed a scrambler build that one of our dealers in Marnie, Iowa did. We posted it on our social media the other day and didn't cost a lot of money, but he turned it into a scrambler and it looks great. And it sounds great and it rides great. The chassis and the engine are really good. Yeah. I mean, someone is, here's a question. If someone really is itching for the 650 twin engine and to to take it off road, would you say that? getting in, you know, like an interceptor and then modifying it would be a reasonable option? Or do you think that would be cool with certain limitations or, or what? Well, I'm not a bike builder, but I do know that the guy that built the Scrambler, Jeremy Pendergrass from Baxter Cycles, he put a complete Himalayan front end on the, the frame of the INT. Front oh. end fits perfectly. He didn't have to make any crazy modifications. So it does fit and it works really well. Wow. So the whole thing just slaps right onto yep. the head tube? Oh, that's sick. And then how about the rear shock? Do you remember if he did anything to the he rear did. shock? He did. Sh- I can't remember offhand what he did, but I can send you the details of the bike. Yeah, I would love to see that. And that's something that I just happened to miss. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for answering a bunch of the questions. We've got some people here that do remember the Summit Point. You know, they said it was awesome. It said, and then we got one from Mithun Mukherjee. Are you guys still putting Varda batteries in the new bikes out of Texas? Here's some very hair-splitting questions here. Uh, I think they have different batteries. Okay, that's cool. That's awesome. Well, I think I'm in the warehouse. uh, This is a marketing lady. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that they put different batteries in them. That's cool. But you know what they say? Heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? (laughs) I've got to get up on my technical data. Like, I mean, I know how to change oil. My fiance and I work on bikes all the time. He's teaching me how to do everything. But fine, guys. I hear the ADV Moto audience. I have to get more technically inclined. So I hear you. I'm listening. Next time, if Carl has me on the show, I will have a lot more technical know-how for all of you guys. Awesome. I think that would be really cool. But this is a wonderful time to go ahead and introduce our next guest. He's a young bloke from the UK who set out not to only ride around the world, but also tried to be the youngest person to do so at the ripe old age of 22 and more Himalayan saddle time than most of us could imagine. Everyone, please welcome Jack Groves, a.k.a. Brit on a Bike. Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm your lead. 
Yeah. This is like wear our sunglasses at night. <laughs> you can't see anything? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, man, why don't you tell everybody where you at? So uh, I'm currently Incan capital of Cusco. It's about 3,500 meters up. So it's walking up a flight of stairs. It's a bit of an effort. As you can see behind me, it's, uh, yeah, you've got a bit, of a bit of a cityscape there. I have been here since March 16th. So I'm on my 102nd day, 102nd day in lockdown. 102nd day in lockdown. Boy, man. I mean, so where should you be now? Like if... Like if all this craziness hadn't happened, where should you be now? Around your neck of the woods would have been the ideal scenario. Mm. Yes, yeah, so my original sort of route plan was was looking at roughly, you know, Jan, Feb, early March to South America, and then heading into Central America in May, and then you know hopefully up near the uh, U.S. West Coast in June, July, June, July time. So I'm, to say the least, a little bit behind schedule. Thank you. All right, Hans. Right. Well, so you've set out to break the world record for the youngest person to ride around the world by motorcycle. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, that is correct. Okay, that's cool. What is the record and who currently holds it? So the record currently stands, um, without getting too technical, it's just under 24 years old. And the current holder is a, a guy called Henry Crew, who did it on a Ducati Scrambler. He went around the world on a Ducati Scrambler in 2018. I think he got back in May, oh, it was 2019. Yeah, just before I left, May 2019. And then the person before that was another Brit, another bloke called Kane Avellano, and he's the guy that inspired me. So yeah, it seems wow. to be like a bit of a British wrap up at the moment, you know, we need to get some more people involved. Oh, oh. All right, well, Jack, this, this is a question, man, that I'm sure you are certified to answer for all of the people in the UK, yeah. and that is, why do the British love adventure riding so much? <laughs> Despite the fact is it the island or what? I think it's an interesting one. It's because, you know, we've got Europe on our doorstep. It's probably a, a big reason. You know, lots of these fantastic adventure riding. I think we'll get onto it later about some of the questions, some of my, you know, come takeaways from the trip. But having Europe on the doorstep, having the, the Trans-European trails, some of the amazing riding you can do, do in the Balkans and Spain, you know, some of the riding in Spain and Portugal alone is fantastic. And then if you want to drop over to Morocco and, and start doing some of the sort of the Atlas Mountains and the, uh, the Western Sahara stuff, that's completely accessible as well. So I think it's just, you know, we've grown up. The history of bikes in the UK is massive. You know, Norton, Triumph, Enfield, and you've got some, some real history there in terms of the brand. So, yeah, I, I don't have a size answer for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it was only a half serious question, but I think there is a ton of super passionate love for writing in the UK and you know and certainly we have a lot of friends from the UK that come over here love to speak and everything and I think it's pretty much awesome everyone loves it actually we are thinking about having one of our friends of ADV Moto in UK an upcoming page for our far rider comic so that will be pretty interesting so how long have you been riding man and you know when did you decide to tackle this challenge better question for you how long since I stopped riding but <laughs> I think it's about I've been on the road for about, it's coming on a year. I left on July the 11th from London last year. So in a, yeah, a few weeks time, it'll be bang on a year. And where have I been? Well, it was really more about like, how long have you been riding just in general, not on this particular trip? Oh, I see. Yeah, but in terms of like, when did you start riding? And then when did you decide you were just like, yo, I think I'm just going to break a world record tonight. <laughs> yeah, as much as it would be fun to just say, it was a bit of like a pub you know, over a beer. I just thought I'd run around the world. It wasn't that quick. I started riding pretty much as soon as I was legally able to in the UK. 
I've been riding dirt bikes, you know, Honda CRFs. So we've been down to France quite a bit with mates as sort of early as I could. And I've been riding them in, on, on sort of, you know, family, around the family place you know, on dirt bikes for, for ages since I was really young. And then I think 17, 18, I passed my CBT, which is, I'm not going to bore you with European Union motorcycle regulations because it could send the best of us to sleep. But uh, yeah, effectively, as soon as I was able to, did my CBT and then I got my license pretty quickly after that. And when I decided to, to do the trip, it was pretty much when I saw Kane a few years ago in MCN, MCN News, which is, I'm not sure if you guys got that in the States. Do you have MCN? Yeah. 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 It's probably an American thing. I don't know why I'm trying to claim MCN. No, it's, it's a British thing, but we get it here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, so MCN a few years ago put out the article about Kane's, Kane Avalano's round the world um, trip. And I remember I was up in Scotland actually with a few friends. And I remember just sitting in a pub over fish and chips. I mean, how you can get any more British than that, really. And we basically just had this chat, you know, that's pretty achievable. And I was the one that was really going for it. And I could tell that they were, you know, slightly lukewarm to say the least. And I pretty much decided there, there and then that for the next three years of my life, while I was at university in London, I would be saving up, you know, I'd be working, putting money aside and time aside for that year after uni when I could, um, I could make it happen. So... When did the idea come? Probably about 2016, 2016, 2017, I had the idea. Oh, wow. So it's not something that you just kind of did spur of the moment. I mean, you've always had an aspiration to do this. No, it, it costs money. Like, it's not, I should probably say, actually, for people watching, I'm not sponsored by anybody. So, so Bree, Bree isn't funneling, funneling me cash to say the right things. I tried um, to, but he says no. <laughs> All these principles. As anyone, I think pretty much anyone who's in the ADV market thinks about the big trip. I and mean, I probably just thought about it at a younger age. But yeah, it, it takes time to, to sort of build the funds up, to think about the route, to plan, to think about bikes, and then to make it happen. So yeah, it's about three years. Awesome. So how did you, you know, decide on the route, you know, and how much of it have you done? How did I decide on the route? I just got a big world map to start with. And then uh, pretty much, if you're going to do a round the world trip, your main concern is you go all the way through Ukraine and Russia and do the sort of the, the Charlie Borman, Ewan McGregor long way round uh, trip, which basically involves um, spending months of your time in Siberia. I have to say, I didn't float my boat massively at the start. I didn't fancy spending three months going through Siberia on the road of bones. So from then on, if you're going to go via sort of the Malaysia-Singapore route, you've got three options. You go through either Russia, you go through Iran, or you go through China. At the time, the Russian boss still is, the Russian visa is just really tricky because they give you set dates. So that was sort of ruled out. The Iranian side of things, it was at the time when the Iranians were nicking our tankers and then we were nicking the Iranian tankers. And it was all just a little bit geopolitically sketchy. So I wasn't keen on being a, uh, a hostage in Tehran for too long. So, yeah, pretty much my choices narrowed down to Central Asia and China. And, yeah, so I did Europe, Turkey, through the Caucasus, Georgia, Azerbaijan, a ferry across the Caspian Sea, which was really interesting. And then you enter Central Asia, so Turkmenistan, all the stands, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, anything with the sun on the end, pretty much. And, wow. and then into China. And then, yeah, from China, Xinjiang, which is... I'm not sure if anyone knows, you probably do. A bit of a police state at the moment. So that was a really quite harrowing experience, actually. I went through with two Americans and Africa twins. So <laughs> Himalayan, Africa twins. Oh, that's cool. That was fun. Yeah. So 
you know, China is my stomping ground yes. for the ADV world. And I spent some time out in Xinjiang. Which areas did you go to? So we crossed the border in from Kyrgyzstan at, what's a pass called? It's got some really wacky name. Torigat. Uh, Torigat Pass. There's like Urkishtem down in Tajikistan. Mm-hmm. And we crossed mm-hmm. at Torigat at Kyrgyzstan, which I think is the second or third highest border. Okay. And then from there, we went to Kashgar, spent a week in Kashgar doing, getting a Chinese driving license, Chinese number plates. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it was quite an intense week of Chinese bureaucracy and uh, being followed by police cars. Yeah, so were you guys on your own or were you escorted the whole time? So it's impossible as far as I understand, you may have a different view on this, but as far as when I was looking at it, it was the, the case. You can't drive through Xinjiang or Tibet, which are obviously both autonomous regions. Yeah, not anymore. Yes, without a guide. You can't go through by yourself. So we had to have a guide. And it was myself on the Himalayan. It was a Irish Hong Kong, which is an amazing nationality, an Irish Hong Konger on a Honda 500X, CB500X, and then two Americans on the Africa Twins. So yes, that was a group. And you guys just met at the pass down there. You guys were just like hanging out and being like, oh, Chill, other motorcyclists at this heavily militarized board. through Xinjiang with me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just about ready to roll through this area. You want to join yeah, us? It was, uh, I mean, is that what happened? As awesome as that would be, unfortunately, no. It was preordained on the uh, on Horizons Unlimited. Or I think you know, it was a Facebook group, China Transit for Overlanders, which is a really niche Facebook group, which I recommend joining yeah. for just general interest because it's, it's just quite a, quite an interesting feed going on. So we all met on there and then sorted the whole guide thing out all online beforehand and then met in a Kyrgyzstan yurt camp about 20k from the border which was absolutely freezing yeah yeah it's because you're at high altitude up there and it's dry yes yeah yeah it's super cold at night yeah well that's fantastic so you basically went through it or did you spend any any time there so again in Xinjiang yeah, right. So, yeah, we spent, as I said, a week in Kashgar. And then when we got, got all our docks, all our visas and docks sorted and the bike things, we then headed south from Kashgar. And that's when you get to a fork in the road after about 100K. And then lots of people then take the right-hand fork off to Kadungla and the, the northern pass into Pakistan, the, yeah. on the Karakaram Highway. So that was where we actually turned left, which is where most people, you know, most people sort of head off right and just spend three or four days in China and get into Pakistan and into India as quickly as they can. I took the view quite a Oh, you were the southern around the desert. Yeah, exactly. I took the view that- Around the Taklamakan. I took the view that the, yeah. the Himalayan has been you know, done in India pretty extensively, to say the least. I think lots of the output you see from people on Himalayans on social media and you know, YouTube and press releases, et cetera, is very focused in the Leila Dak region of Northern India and you know, that Himalayan region. So I was quite keen to perhaps show a different side of things, which was Xinjiang, Tibet, and you know, the highest region in the world. So to see how the Himalayan fared. Yeah. So that was- Yeah, that's uh, awesome. So you got, how many miles, kilometers do you have on it now? Miles, it is 33,000, I think, so 50,000K. I picked it up secondhand with 6,000K on the clock, so. Oh, right on. So you got 30,000 miles. How has it held up so far? I mean, so honestly, I think it's, I love it. And I think one of the biggest probably land bikes with all the gizmos on to actually, you know, go around the world. That's, that's part of the takeaway. So, so far it's held up fantastically. It's been, it's been tested in literally every single condition you could possibly imagine, you know, you've got snow blizzards in, in the stands in Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, you've got 
55 degrees centigrade days in Australia, the hottest day of the year, bushfires in Australia, you know, deserts in Tajikistan. So it's been everywhere. And I have to say it's, uh, wow. you know, if you ask any rider who does a round the world trip, is your bike in any problems? You know, every bike has niggles, but you know, the clutch, the engine, everything has held up amazingly well. So thumbs up from me. Well, that's awesome. Thumbs now. up for you, Jack. <laughs> I wanted to ask, are you changing the tires and the treads of the tires? Like, you know, so when you're in China riding in certain kind of, you know, terrain and when you're in Peru and all these places, are you changing out, you know, the specific tires? So I have been through like four sets of tires. I started on the, the Prelli, the MT60s, which come stock in the UK. I'm not sure about the, about the US. And I think I've been through then Avon's, Trail Riders, and then Hydenals, Metzellers. Yeah, I think I've been through the whole scope of, apart from the mitres, I think, the whole scope of tyres that fit on the bike. I generally just, I swap them out, you know, when I've got a good Enfield dealer that I can get source good tyres at, which obviously between Turkey and Thailand, it's a bit of continental-sized gap in the yeah. dealer support, <laughs> unless you go over the Himalayas to India. So, yeah, I think I changed them in Thailand first time. Yeah. I think the Prelli and the Avon got me all the way to Thailand, and then I changed them for the, maybe the Prellies again, and then in Perth in Australia, Maybe the Hydenaus and then the Metzlers in Sydney. I can't remember. I've been through four sets. Do you have a favorite tire? Like, you know, like, is there a tire no, that, I'm, like, I'm you're just it. like, man, these things are just awesome I'm on here. Trying people to get really into the tires. Yeah. <laughs> you find people, especially on these Himalayan forums, that have got some really, you know, set views. And if anyone goes against it, you've just basically committed heresy. Um, yeah. <laughs> <but> I'm, <laughs> I'm not massively partial to one. I, I'm not a huge fan of the MT60s that come stock. So that's probably a bad thing to say. So Brie will dock my money for that. But <laughs> no, I, reckon, not money for you today. <laughs> I think I'd probably say the Metzelers were the most impressive in terms of, you know, they've just been abused on road, off road, dirt tracks, big potholes. And they've really held up in terms of longevity. They've been really impressive. So <laughs> fantastic. So I need to get my own cleaner in the background. Sorry, my fiance and my dad are having a blast. <laughs> All right. <there> <laughs> I actually locked them in the basement and then they heard your voice, that British accent, and they just well, it's really awkward. Yeah, they just had to bust so in. You, they just had to bust in. I have another question. Sorry, Carl, I'll cut you off again. It, no, okay. Go how ahead. do you feel when it comes to having to make changes or do services on your motorcycle yourself? You know, is there basic stuff that you feel comfortable doing, but other stuff that you feel like, you know, it's important to go to a dealer and get done? Yeah, fantastic question. I think, as you touched on probably earlier, the accessibility of the Himalayan was another massive plus for me. I think anyone wearing up buying a Himalayan new, I bought it secondhand. But if you're wearing up buying it new, you have the same dilemma as me, which is you've got the BMW, you've got the, the Honda, you've got the Himalayan. The massive thing for me was that going through the regions of the world where the dealer supports, you don't have... The BMW or KTM or a Honda dealer to, to sort of get his computer fixed up and start, you know, hacking into the Pentagon for you. <laughs> it was really important for me that you could actually stop by the side of the road. You know, I'm comfortable doing oil changes, tire stuff, um, clutch, you know, all the sort of the cables and the various sort of bits and bobs that inevitably will niggle and you have to fix. There's a massive forum, as you mentioned online, in terms of the Himalayan owners recommending things, recommending fixes, and all that sort of thing. So I'm generally pretty confident to anything. Yeah, if you can ask me to take the clutch, the clutch plates out in the middle of Patagonia, I'll pass on that, thanks. But, <laughs> <laughs> but everything apart from taking the engine apart and the clutch apart, I'm pretty confident doing. So 
And that's, a, again, a massive plus for the Himalaya. You can fix most of it yourself. You don't have to take all the fairings off or any sort of plastic gizmos to get to it. And then if you do need someone to actually have a look at it with a bit more machinery, you know, anyone can do it. Anyone can do it at the side of the road. So it's an engine and a, and a frame and a sort of a setup that people can look at, any mechanic can look at and understand immediately what he's looking at. That's a huge benefit yeah. when you're traveling around the world. It's no joke. Yeah. So Ian Grid Moto Peldonio says, since all three of you are Himalayan enthusiasts, writers, and advocates, can each of you share one of your funniest and most memorable moments with the machine? I kind of shared one a little bit earlier about that lady that saw it, but you know, like, do you guys have one, Bree? My funniest or my most memorable moments. I think being able to ride the Himalayan in India, you know, the place where it was conceived and conceived. It's like it gave birth to the Himalayan. <laughs> and one of my employees had gone over there with me at the time, Sarah Lahali, and it was just such a beautiful, we were riding um, along the coast in Goa. And I think that's one of the most fantastic moments I've had on the Himalayan. Mm, right on. Jack? As well as two, as two funny moments that stand out. One was quite early on in the trip, doing the, the, the famous Glossglockner Pass in Austria, which is, for anyone who knows European roads, is up there with the Stelvio. Stelvio Pass is sort of the best roads in Europe to ride. So inevitably, it's clogged, clogged. And I mean, like every other bike is a KTM or a BMW. It is, you know, we're talking 85% level of density, KTM density. I remember wow. pulling over one of the viewpoints and these group of riders pulled in all on KTMs and BMWs. And, you know, they all, every single one of them crowded around the Himalayan and were just asking questions and saying, so, okay, so who's it made by? When did it come out? What's the CC? And all this sort of stuff. And they were asking, you know, you could see that they were like, Royal Enfield, oh, I'm not sure I want to like that. But you could see on their faces that they absolutely loved it. <laughs> yeah. I remember just the irony of these guys in these huge bikes. I overtook most of them on the way down because they are so heavily laden and two up. I was just sort of buzzing around them, but it was a funny moment. All right. So you're done through most of your trip now. Fortunately, you're stuck over there, you know, so hopefully if you can get released from Peru shortly, then you're going to be making it, what, up through South America, Central America? Yes, exactly. So, you know, I mean, if and when things open up, the borders are looking, I've been on false alarm duty for pretty much three months now in terms of the Peruvians saying, it's all good, we're going to open up, Machu Picchu is going to be open and, you know, you can just chill out and do what you want. And then, you know, two days later, it's no, you've got to stay in your room you know, lock your door and just cry yourself to sleep every night because you're not allowed to move to go anywhere. It's sort of gone, it's, it's been a bit of a seesaw of just bad news, good news. But if and when stuff does open up, I'm going to be out the blocks like a like an absolute greyhound heading north. Probably, yeah, Ecuador, Colombia, and then get a boat from Cartagena, Colombia to Panama, and then from Panama, just blitz it through Central America, heading for San Diego but there's no tomorrow. And then hopefully I'll, if I can get to the States before sort of winter sets in, then great. I doubt I'll be able to get all the way back to Europe this year because I just don't think it's going to happen. So I may have to take a pit stop in the States somewhere for a month or so. And Milwaukee. Finish it. Yeah, Milwaukee. It's all running yeah. out. It's very, it's very pleasant here in the winter. Yeah, you should have no problem riding up there in the winter. I mean, you got short days, ice, ice on the roads all the time, strong winds up there too. You got some serious winds up there, you know, all kinds of love. And if you ever swing through the Virginia area, East Coast, Mid-Atlantic, yeah, where are you going to go back to the UK from? So you guys make it really difficult to fly bikes. I think it's probably a post 9-11 thing. You're welcome. Uh, lifetime of gratitude for that, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> it basically means I have to go to Canada. 
Air Canada do this sort of super cool fly your bike thing. So I'm currently thinking Montreal, Casablanca, Morocco. That could be, that's currently the working plan. And then from Casablanca, uh, let's poodle about a bit in the uh, in the Atlas Mountains and then get a ferry across to Gibraltar or Spain and then uh, on the home straight. That's the working plan. Canada is absolutely beautiful. So it wouldn't be a bad move going up there at some point. I would say it's yeah. a little bit colder than here in the winter. So avoid that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, man. Before you return home, I mean, do you have any thoughts or feelings about returning home? You've, you've been on the road for a while now. It's been this kind of like emotional ups and downs roller coaster. You know, have, have you changed as a person? And do you think there will be an adjustment when you do finally make it back there? You're trying to egg me on to say that I found myself. I will not say it. No. <laughs> no, I don't think... You didn't have a spiritual awakening, Jeff? Yeah, exactly. I've spent so long in the Andes. I just sort of become, yeah. Sort of you haven't become game. a butterfly? <laughs> a reincarnate. Um, no, I, I definitely think the, my perception... It definitely helps riding around the world when you can then look at the world map and it's no longer just a, a load of blanks. You can visualize very clearly what Europe and Turkey looks like and how the terrain and the, you know, the heat changes from Turkey into Central Asia, for example, and the deserts appear and then the mountains appear and then the, the cold and the, the Himalayas appear. So it's definitely changed your perception of how the fragility of Earth, for sure. I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff I've seen along the way, whether it be in the Himalayas, or Australia, you know, you've got massive glacier melting in the Himalayas, you've got the record heat waves in Australia. So it does hit home to you that the planet, you know, how small it is, but also how fragile it is. And also, secondly, it does make you appreciate quite a bit more as well what you have at home. You know, London can be, like any big Western city, an absolute sort of rat run in many cases. But actually, when you've been through some of the places that I've been, <laughs> you can really appreciate, you know, simple stuff like having a Starbucks on the corner. <laughs> Or having access to good food, having access to water and food on tap, good infrastructure, good transport, that sort of thing. I'll come back home and I'll, I'll be a lot more appreciative for the stuff that you have, that I have back home for sure. Right on. So last question for both you guys. I think it's already been about an hour and you guys are awesome guests tonight. But are there any words of inspiration to share with current or future adventure riders out there? Bri, you want to go first? I will, but then I have a question for Jack from a customer. Oh, but cool. I think Jack and Itchy and all those people are inspiration is don't be afraid to, you know, go on whatever adventure inspires you. And there should be nothing that holds you back. Don't make excuses. Just get out there and live your life and do whatever makes you happy and find your soul and become a butterfly like Jack. So Jack the yeah. butterfly. Butterfly Jack. Wow, butterfly Jack. How did this go so badly? Every time I email you now, you're going to be butterfly Jack. Butterfly Jack. My Instagram handle is now at Butterfly Jack. Butterfly Jack. Train has left the station, my man. Train has left the station. Um, one of our best Canadian customers and a really good friend from the brand texted me, and he wants to know from you, Jack, what kind of weird hospitality of different areas have you had to be a part of or get accustomed to while you're there? Good question. Very good question. You know, one of the things that anyone who does, you know, who's been through several countries on a bike will say is that the two biggest impacts that have the sort of that stay with you for a long time is not the cities and the you know the tourist sites and all the sort of the, the bucket list things that you're told to see in every country. It's the people and it's the nature and the landscapes that, that stay with you. The most interesting hospitality, Turkey was fantastic. In Kyrgyzstan, I stayed in some of some really sort of you know weird yurts where the whole sort of, the, the, you know, they're burning yak dung to keep it warm. 
Um, you've got various assortments of testicles to eat for dinner, boiled in like big stew. Well, I'm pretty sure they were testicles. I don't want to just slate and smear Kyrgyzstan or the Yurt community, but I'm pretty sure they were eating testicles at the time. And then in China, the battle was, you know, letting, finding somewhere to stay. For most people, and I'm sure Carl will say the same in Xinjiang, especially in Tibet, you know, we had to, we did like 400k days, stopped at the, this hotel or guest house where the guide thought that we were going to be okay to stay. And they just said, no foreigners, you know, we, we're not interested in having any trouble with the police. Yeah. We don't want any trouble, no police trouble. And I said, like, well, you know, I'm offering you money. <laughs> I'll keep my head down. I'll close my window and I won't go out. Yeah, I'll just, can we have somewhere to stay? And they, yeah. and they said, no, 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 no. We don't want foreigners. And there was one day actually in Xinjiang where I think we'd done 400K and then we did 50 more K to get to the next town to ask three places there, no foreigners. And we did about 100K further on from there. We actually stayed. If anyone's following the news now with the whole India-China border flare-up, we actually stayed in a disused Chinese military base because it was there were chemical leaflets all over the place and there were sort of chemical military Chinese um, People's Republican Army pamphlets everywhere. We stayed in a disused military base in the Aksai Chin disputed region of, of Tibet, which is disputed by India, which is the whole thing is is flaring up at the moment. So I looked at the map yesterday reading the news and thought, <laughs> holy smoke, we were literally 50k away, you know, oh. on this, you know, really weird disused military base. So yeah, that was a weird place to stay for sure. So it, was, it got turned into a hotel or you guys? No, was, we just got to the point, I think I actually lost the plot because <laughs> we were, there was myself, Tango, who was another Brit and then two Americans, John and uh, Amin on the, on the Hondas. And we'd just been doing 600k days, absolutely freezing. You know, everyone was a bit fed up. And I just said, look, yeah, we've been through six towns now. No one said we're going to stay anywhere. I'm, I'm not going to carry on just going on until midnight to try and find something that isn't going to be there. So we saw this place by the side of the road, drove off the dirt track for about 10 minutes. And it was like a small U-shaped compound. It looked like it had been left in a hurry, which was... Initially, yeah. yeah, it was initially quite concerning because there was chemical, you know, vials around and chemical pamphlets. And we were thinking, is this like the site of the Chinese Chernobyl that mm -hmm. we just never told, <laughs> we never got out of the Chinese firewall? And we're just all going to just basically die of, you know, some sort of horrendous poisoning in the night. But actually, we just, we, you know, there were bunk beds in there. We got our sleeping bags out and we all just kicked up in this, this Chinese military base in the Aksai Chin disputed region. So, yeah, that was pretty mental. It was not a There was no reception, no room service. Wow. Well, that's some good times. It seems like you may have found yourself and not know it. You never know, man. Butterfly Jack. Butterfly Jack. Butterfly also, Jack. Like Samurai just, Jack, just, but with more butterflies. Just to, just to echo Bree's inspiring point, I absolutely on, agree with her in terms of you know the adventure... One of the main things I've, I've learned, taken away, that you don't have to go on a round-the-world trip to have an adventure. It's not about where you are, it's about how you feel. Uh, someone, I think someone told me that a while ago, it stuck with me, because it is so true. You could be camping out, you know, in the States, you guys have got loads of places, but in Europe, it could be in Slovenia, it can be in Spain. As long as you're in a place where you're feeling like you're, you know, you're doing something out of the ordinary and you're doing something adventurous, and that is all, what it's all about. You don't need a, a £15,000 dollar bike, you don't need sponsors, you, know, you don't need to plan for ages. You know, just put some money aside and some time aside in advance and make it happen. Right on, guys. Well, thanks very much for all your time tonight, guys. Hang around for a little bit. We can kind of decompress. 
after the show. It's been super cool having you on and, you know, y'all keep on riding. I'll try. Keep on riding. Well, all right. Much thanks to Bree and Butterfly Jack for taking the time to share their thoughts and experience with us. Best of luck to both of them as they tackle their own Himalayan-sized challenges. Watching Royal Enfield develop as a brand over the past five years, personally at least, has been a breath of fresh air. When the options were only a few gigantic brands, we all know, and some we had hardly ever heard of. Royal Enfield had, and still has, an important role to play in the future of riding in the United States. It wasn't so long ago, by which I mean only a couple of years, that all we heard was doom and gloom about motorcycling. But really, those two-wheeled machines of ours are firmly embedded into not only our culture, but others around the world. More likely, all we need is more brands listening to what the modern rider wants and giving us options that we could not only get excited about, but also afford. So, whether you're on a $25,000 or $2,500 bike, ADV Moto will always maintain that adventure is about the rider. We want to celebrate a richer diversity in not only bike options, but riders themselves, each with a new dream to be realized and become wiser and more confident versions of themselves that are to be found around every corner. So, moving forward, ADV Moto Live will be off for next week and start airing every other Thursday, but there's more. We're looking to bring new video content to you on a regular basis and more diverse content. So join us right here on Thursday, July 9th for ADV Moto Podcasts, where we'll be featuring a new video podcast from Nathan Slabaugh, where we're going to talk about the KTM 390 and a minimalist tank bag from Giant Loop. Please check it out. Let us know what you think. Your support means a lot. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel and visit AdventureMotorcycle.com for more ADV. Until next time, everyone, ride safe and have fun. Wow.